This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Good evening and welcome to this evening's program. My name is Denise Jorgens and I'm the Director of Programs and External Relations here at International House. Tonight's program is part of our World Beyond the Headlines series, which is a collaborative project with the University of Chicago Center for International Studies, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. This program is funded in part by the McCormick Tribune Foundation. Uh, tonight's program, we are pleased to welcome uh, Professor Martha Nussbaum. Uh, Professor Nussbaum is the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. She's going to be speaking to us tonight on her latest book, The Clash Within, Democracy, Religious Violence, and India's Future. And before we begin, I'd like to just um, mention the final program in our World Beyond the Headlines series um, will be held on uh, Tuesday, May 15th at 6 p.m. here at International House, when we will welcome William Langwish speaking on the Atomic Bazaar, the rise of, nuclear, rise of the nuclear poor. And finally, I'd like to um, uh, please be aware that today's um, event is being audio and video recorded for broadcast on the web. You'll be able to see or hear this program again by going online to the University of Chicago's International and Area Studies Multimedia Outreach Source, Chiasmos, um, and information about that uh, site is on the, um, the table in the back. Following um, the program, we do have books for sale, and uh, Professor Nussbaum has agreed to, um, to stay and sign, sign books with all of us. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for coming. And uh, this, I'm a philosopher, and for many years I've been working on the ethical foundations of international development. And in a research project with Amartya Sen, we've tried to work out what's now known as the human development approach or, or also known as the capability approach to development, uh, which is a, an attempt to replace the dominant emphasis on uh, measuring development by GNP per capita with a more humanistic and multi-valued approach. So that's what led me to India. And my book, Women in Human Development, uh, mapped out the, my version of the capabilities approach in connection with the intense focus on the condition of women in India. But since I was then spending so much time in India, and I've also been working with legal non-governmental organizations and with uh, various organizations dealing with women, uh, I came to know of, of the events of the Gujarat uh, riots, and I noticed that while there was a tremendous amount of good writing and uh, trenchant analysis that went on in the Indian media, there really wasn't all that much that was reaching the US. And so I felt that it would probably be a, a, a time to set aside some time to try to get this story out to the American public. 
And so that is what led to the production of this book. And uh, at first I thought, really what I'm doing is I'm a loudspeaker for the voices in India who have been writing about this but who just don't get listened to in America. And of course, as one gets into it, uh, you know, I, I can't write a book that's not written by me. And so certain characteristic preoccupations of mine with the, uh, the importance of critical uh, thinking and the imagination and other things like that have, have worked their way into the center of this book. So what I'll do now is to give you kind of an overview of the argument. And inevitably, it will be very, uh, it'll be crude in some places, but it should, should give you some idea of what's in the book. On February 27th, 2002, the Sabarmati Express train arrived in the station of Godra in the Western Indian state of Gujarat, bearing a large group of Hindu pilgrims who were returning from a pilgrimage to the alleged birthplace of the god Rama at Ayodhya, where some years earlier, angry Hindu mobs had destroyed the Babri Mosque, which they claim is on top of the remains of Rama's birthplace. The pilgrimage, like many others in recent times, aimed at forcibly constructing a temple over the disputed site. And the mood of the returning passengers, frustrated in their aims by the government and the courts, was angry. When the train stopped at the Godra station, passengers got into arguments with Muslim vendors and passengers. At least one Muslim vendor was beaten up when he refused to say Jai Shri Ram, Hail Ram. As the train left the station, stones were thrown at it, apparently by Muslims. Fifteen minutes later, one car of the train erupted in flames. Fifty-eight men, women, and children died in the fire. Most of the dead were Hindus. Because the area adjacent to the tracks where the train had stopped uh, as, uh, before the explosion took place was an area of Muslim dwellings, and because a Muslim mob had gathered in the region to protest the treatment of Muslims on the station platform, blame was immediately put on Muslims. Many people were arrested, and some of these are still in detention today, five years later, without charge, despite the fact that two independent inquiries into the event have established through careful sifting of the forensic evidence that the fire was most probably a tragic accident caused by combustion from cook stoves carried onto the train and then stored under the seats. In the days that followed, wave upon wave of violence swept through the state. The attackers were Hindus, many of them highly politicized, shouting Hindu rights slogans and also shouting things like kill, destroy, and slaughter. There's copious evidence that the violent retaliation was planned by Hindu extremist organizations before the precipitating event, in the sense that lists of Muslim dwellings and businesses were stored up and they were just waiting for a precipitating event. No one was spared. Young children were burned along with their families. Particularly striking, and something I, I do dwell on in the book, was the number of women who were raped, mutilated, in some cases tortured with large metal objects, and then set on fire. Over the course of several weeks, about 2,000 Muslims were killed, most of them in parts of the state that were very far from the precipitating event. Most alarming was the total breakdown in the rule of law, not only at the local level, but also at that of state and even national government. Police were ordered not to stop the violence. Some egged it on. Gujarat's chief minister, Narendra Modi, rationalized and even encouraged the murders. He was later re-elected on a platform that focused on religious hatred. Because ev evidence of his criminal activity is so overwhelming, he has been denied a visa to enter the United States. Meanwhile, the national government showed a culpable indifference. Prime Minister Vajpayee suggested that religious riots were inevitable wherever Muslims live alongside Hindus. 
and the troublemaking Muslims must be to blame. Leading politicians implied that government would treat citizens unequally. Some would receive the full protection of the law, and others would not. While Americans have focused on the war in Iraq and the Middle East, democracy has been under siege in another part of the world. India, the most populous of all democracies, and a country whose constitution protects human rights even more comprehensively than our own, has been in crisis. Until the spring of 2004, its parliamentary government was increasingly controlled by right-wing Hindu extremists who condone and in some cases actively support violence against minorities, particularly Muslims. Many seek fundamental changes in India's pluralistic democracy. Despite their electoral loss, these political groups and their allied social organizations remain extremely powerful. What's been happening in India is a serious threat to democracy in the world. The fact that it has yet to make it onto the radar screen of most Americans is evidence of the way in which terrorism and the war in Iraq have distracted Americans from events and issues of fundamental significance. If we really want to understand the impact of religious nationalism on democratic values, India currently provides a troubling example and one without which any understanding of the general phenomenon is dangerously incomplete. It also provides an example of how democracy can survive religious extremism. In May 2004, the voters of India went to the polls in large numbers. Contrary to all predictions, they gave the Hindu right a resounding defeat. In my book, I use the case of Gujarat as a lens through which to conduct a critical examination of the influential thesis of the so-called clash of civilizations, made famous by Samuel Huntington. Huntington's picture of the world as riven between democratic Western values and an aggressive Muslim monolith does nothing to help us understand today's India, where the violent values of the Hindu right are actually imports from European fascism of the 1930s, and where the third largest or second largest Muslim population in the world lives in peace, despite severe poverty and other inequalities. Through a study of this case, I argue that the real clash of civilizations is not the clash between Islam and the West, but instead a clash within virtually all modern nations between people who are prepared to live with others who are different on terms of equal respect and those who seek the protection of homogeneity and the domination of a single pure religious and ethnic tradition. At a deeper level, this book's thesis is the Gandhian claim that the real clash of civilizations is the clash within the individual self, between the urge to dominate and defile the other and a willingness to live respectfully on terms of compassion and equality with all the vulnerability that such a life entails. This argument about India also suggests a way to see America, which is also torn between two different pictures of itself. One picture shows America and Americans as good and pure, its enemies as an external axis of evil. The other picture, the fruit of internal self-criticism, shows America to itself as complex and flawed, torn between forces bent on control and hierarchy and forces that promote democratic equality. At a deeper level, what I've called the Gandhian level, my internal clash picture shows Americans to themselves as people, each of whom is capable of both respect and aggression, both democratic mutuality and anxious domination. As George Kennan wrote shortly after World War II, I wish I could believe that the human impulses which give rise to the nightmares of totalitarianism were ones which providence had allocated only to other peoples and to which the American people had been graciously left immune. Unfortunately, 
I know this is not true. The fact of the matter is that there is a little bit of the totalitarian buried somewhere way down deep in each and every one of us. According to the Huntington thesis, each civilization has its own rather unitary view of life, and Hinduism counts as a distinct civilization. If we investigate the history of the Hindu rite, however, we see a very different story. Traditional Hinduism was decentralized, plural, and highly tolerant, so much so that the vision of a unitary, pure Hinduism that could provide the new nation with an aggressive ideology of homogeneity could not be found in India at all. The founders of the Hindu rite had to import it from Europe. Today, European fascism is seated right at the heart of what parades, in some quarters at least, as Hindu civilization. The Hindu rite's view of history is a simple one. Like all simple tales, it's largely a fabrication, but its importance to the movement may be seen in the intensity with which its members go after scholars, including some at this university, who present a more nuanced and accurate picture. Here's how the story goes. Once there lived in the Indus Valley a pure and peaceful people. They spoke Vedic Sanskrit, language revealed as that of the gods when the immortal Vedas were given to humanity. They had a rich material culture, well-suited to sustain their prosperous life. Their realm was vast, stretching from Kashmir in the north to Ceylon in the south. And they, yet they saw unity and solidarity in their shared ways of life, calling themselves Hindus and their land Hindustan. No class divisions troubled them, nor was caste a painful source of division. The condition of women was excellent. This peaceful condition went on for many centuries. Although from time to time, marauders made their appearance at this people's doorstep, for example, the Huns, they were quickly dispatched because this people was aggressive when it needed to be. Suddenly, unprovoked, invading Muslims put an end to all that. The early medieval period saw brief incursions by Muslims bent on the destruction of Hindu temples. These, however, proved short-lived. Disaster struck with a heavier hand, however, when Babur swept through the north of Hindustan early in the 16th century, vandalizing Hindu temples, stealing sacred objects, building mosques over temple ruins. For 200 years, Hindus lived at the mercy of the marauders until the Maharashtrian hero Shivaji rose up against the aliens and drove them back, restoring the Hindu kingdom. His success, however, was all too brief. Soon, the British East India Company and then the British themselves took up where Babur and his progeny had left off. What is wrong with this picture? Well, for a start, the people who spoke Sanskrit almost certainly migrated into the subcontinent from outside, finding indigenous people there, probably the ancestors of the Dravidian peoples of South India. Hindus are no more indigenous than Muslims. Second, it leaves out problems in early Hindu society. The problem of caste, which both Gandhi and Tagore took to be the central social problem facing India, and problems of class and gender inequality. When historians describe these problems, they call them Marxists, as though that label by itself invalidated the argument. Third, it leaves out large regional differences within Hinduism and hostilities associated with these. I mean, we know that temples were vandalized also by rival Hindu factions. Fourth, it omits the evidence of peaceful coexistence and syncretism between Hindus and Muslims for a great deal of the Mughal Empire, including Akbar's well-known policies of religious toleration. Muslims are nothing but bad and aggressive. In the Hindu right version of history, a persistent theme is that of humiliated masculinity. According to the received story, 
Hindus have been subordinate for centuries and their masculinity insulted, in part because they have not been willing to be aggressive enough. Even while the violence of the conquerors is decried, Hindu males are encouraged to emulate that aggressive and warlike demeanor. Rabindranath Tagore, deeply perceptive here as always, represents his Hindu nationalist anti-hero in the novel The Home and the World, written in 1916, as wishing he could seize the woman he desires by force and rape her, but finds himself unable to do so. He blames this inability on his Hindu heritage and wishes for a different nature. He says that there are two different sorts of music, the Hindu flute and the British military band. He wishes that he could hear in his blood the sound of the military band rather than that disturbingly non-aggressive flute. The two leading ideologues of the Hindu right, who in different ways responded to this call for a warlike Hindu masculinity, are V.D. Savarkar, a freedom fighter who spent years in a British prison in the Andaman Islands, and who may have been a co-conspirator in the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, and M.S. Skowarkar, a guru-like figure who was not involved in the independent struggle and who quietly behind the scenes built up the organization known as the RSS, which means National Corps of Volunteers, that is now the leading social organization of the Hindu right. For reasons of time, I'm going to just focus on Gowarkar. His book, We or Our Nationhood Defined, was published in 1939. Some of the remarks that I'm about to quote are embarrassing to Hindus today, and members of the Hindu right hasten to assure one that Gowarkar knew nothing about the Holocaust and withdrew the offending statements in editions published after the war. But 1939 was still after the Nuremberg Laws and Kristallnacht, and my own copy of the fourth edition published in 1947 still contains the statements as I'll quote them here. Writing during the independence struggle, Gowarkar sees his task as that of describing the unity of the new nation. He announces that most Indians' ideas about nationhood are mistaken. Quote, they are not in conformity with those of the Western political scientists. It is but proper, therefore, to understand what the Western scholars state as the universal nation idea and correct ourselves, end quote. Notice the unselfconscious deference to European scholarship. Gowarkar now turns to English dictionaries and to British and German political science. The five elements that he finds repeated as hallmarks of national unity are geography, race, religion, culture, and language. He examines each of these in turn and then analyzes several European nations to see to what extent they embody the desired unities. Germany impresses him especially for the way in which she has managed to unify her territory under one sway. He observes, quote, German race pride has now become the topic of the day. To keep up the purity of the race and its culture, Germany shocked the world by her purging the country of the Semitic races, the Jews. Race pride at its highest has been manifested here. Germany has also shown how well nigh impossible it is for races and cultures having differences going to the root to be assimilated into one united whole. A good lesson for us in Hindustan to learn and profit by. In the end, Gawarkar's vision of national unity is not exactly the same as Nazi Germany's. He is not very concerned with purity of blood, and really he can't be because most Muslims and Christians in India are converts. He's far more concerned with the group's desire to merge into the dominant whole. Groups who fall outside the fivefold definition of nationhood, he concludes, can, quote, have no place in the national life unless they abandon their differences and completely merge themselves in the national race, end quote. 
Unlike Hitler, Gowarkar would probably be happy with the conduct of the many German Jews who converted and assimilated. Nonetheless, he's firmly against civic equality for any people who retain their religious and ethnic distinctiveness, refusing to merge into the dominant Hindu whole. And here is his conclusion about India. There are only two courses open to the foreign elements, either to merge themselves in the national race and adopt its culture, or to live at the sweet will of the national race. That is the only logical and correct solution. That alone keeps the nation safe from the danger of a cancer developing in its body politic of the creation of a state within a state. From this standpoint, sanctioned by the experiences of shrewd old nations, the non-Hindu peoples in Hindustan must either adopt the Hindu culture and language, must learn to respect and hold in reverence Hindu religion, must entertain no idea but those of glorification of the Hindu race and culture. In one word, they must cease to be foreigners, or they may stay in the country, wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, claiming nothing, deserving no privileges, not even citizens' rights. There is, at least should be, no other course for them to adopt. At the time of independence, these ideas of Hindu supremacy did not prevail. Nehru and Gandhi insisted not only on equal rights for all citizens, but also on stringent protections for religious freedom of expression in the new constitution. Gandhi always pointedly included Muslims at the very heart of his movement. A devout Muslim, Maulana Azad, was one of his and Nehru's most trusted advisors. And it was to him that Gandhi turned to accept food when he broke his fast unto death, a very pointed assault on sectarian ideas of purity and pollution. Gandhi's pluralistic ideas, however, were always contested. On January 30th, 1948, Gandhi was shot at point-blank range by Nathuram Godse, who edited a newspaper called Hindu Rashtra, or Hindu Nation. Godse had left RSS because it seemed to him not political enough. Another group called the Hindu Mahasabha, which was a political party, seemed more congenial. He had long had a close relationship with Savarkar, who was at that time the head of the Hindu Mahasabha. He wrote to him in a letter as follows. Since the time you were released from your internment at Ratnagiri, a divine fire has kindled in the minds of those groups who profess that Hindustan is for the Hindus. At his sentencing on November 8, 1949, Goetze read a book-length statement of self-explanation justifying the assassination for posterity. He argues first that Gandhi's pacifism undermines the culture of manliness that the new nation ought to have. Second, the inclusion of Muslims as equal citizens is also disastrous. Because Gandhi is so charismatic, he argues, the only way to stop him is by killing him. Nehru believed that the murder of Gandhi was part of what he called a fairly widespread conspiracy on the part of the Hindu right to seize power. He saw the situation as analogous to that of Europe on the eve of the fascist takeovers, and he called the RSS, quote, a private army proceeding along the strictest Nazi lines, end quote. For reasons of time, we must now fast forward to recent years. Although illegal for a time, the RSS eventually reemerged and quietly went to work building a vast social network consisting largely of groups for young boys called branches or shakas, which through clever use of games and songs indoctrinate the young into the confrontational and Hindu supremacist ideology of the organization. The idea of total obedience and the abnegation of the critical faculties is at the core of this solidaristic movement. Each day, as its members raise the saffron flag of the warlike hero Shivaji, 
which the movement prefers to the tricolor flag of the Indian nation, with its Buddhist wheel of law at its center, reminding citizens of the Emperor Ashoka's devotion to religious toleration, they recite the following pledge. I take the oath that I will always protect the purity of Hindu religion and the purity of Hindu culture for the supreme progress of the Hindu nation. I have become a component of the RSS. I will do the work of the RSS with utmost sincerity and unselfishness and with all my body, soul, and resources. And I will keep this vow for as long as I live. Victory to Mother India. The organization also makes clever use of modern media. A TV version of the classical epic Ramayana in the late 1980s fascinated viewers all over India with its endlessly serialized and quite concocted tale of a unitary Hinduism dedicated to the single-minded worship of the god Rama and his birthplace at Ayodhya. As a result of this propaganda, in 1992, Hindu mobs, egged on by members of the associated political party, the BJP, destroyed a mosque at Ayodhya that they say covers Rama's birthplace. Meanwhile, politically, the BJP began to gather strength in the late 1980s, drawing on widespread public dissatisfaction with the economic policies of the post-Nehru Congress party, although it was actually Congress under Rajiv Gandhi that began the economic reforms, and playing always the cards of hate and fear. It was during their ascendancy in a coalition government that the destruction of the Ayodhya Mosque took place. Although the elections of 2004 gave a negative verdict on the BJP government, it remains the major opposition party, and it controls state governments in some key states, including today, Gujarat. For several years, writing this book, I studied the Gujarat violence, its basis, and its aftermath. And I interviewed many people on all sides of this controversy, looking for its implications for the ways in which we should view religious violence around the world. One obvious conclusion to draw is that each case must be considered on its own merits with close attention to specific historical and regional factors. The idea that all conflicts are explained by a simple hypothesis of a clash of civilizations proves utterly inadequate to the facts of Gujarat, where European ideas borrowed to address a perceived humiliation were used to create an ideology that ultimately led to a great deal of violence against peaceful Muslims. But beyond that general insight, I, my study of the riots has suggested four very specific lessons. Number one, the rule of law. One of the most appalling aspects of Gujarat was the complicity of officers of the law. The institutions of government broke down at the local level and to some extent at the state level. However, the institutional and legal structure of the Indian democracy ultimately proved robust, playing a key role in securing justice for the victims. The Supreme Court and the National Electoral Commission played very constructive roles in postponing new elections in Gujarat while Muslims were encouraged to return to their homes and in ordering changes of venue in some key trials arising out of the violence. Above all, there were free national elections in 2004, and these elections, in which the participation of poor rural voters was decisive, delivered a strongly negative verdict on the policies of fear and hate, as well as on the BJP's economic policies. The current government, headed by Manmohan Singh, India's first minority prime minister, has announced, in fact, in his very first speech after becoming prime minister, a firm commitment to end sectarian violence and has done a great deal to focus attention on the unequal economic and political condition of Muslims in the nation, as well as appointing Muslims to key offices. 
On balance, then, the pluralistic democracy envisaged by Gandhi and Nehru seems to be winning out, in part because the framers had bequeathed to India a wise institutional and constitutional structure and traditions of commitment to the key political values this structure embodies. Political structure is not everything, but it can supply a great deal in times of stress. Number two, the press and the role of intellectuals. One of the heartening aspects of Gujarat was the performance of the national media and the community of intellectuals. Both the print media and television kept up unceasing pressure to document and investigate the riots, and the role of key government officials was documented beyond doubt. At the same time, because the local police were not doing their job, many scholars, lawyers, and NGO leaders converged on Gujarat to take down the testimony of witnesses, help them file complaints, and prepare a public record that would stand up in court. The intellectual community has easier access to the national press in India than in the US, in part thanks to the somewhat greater financial independence of the national media. And these intellectuals seized the opportunity, producing a wonderful outpouring of trenchant and high-quality analysis. We can see here documentation of something long ago observed by my collaborator Amartya Sen in the context of famines, namely the crucial role of a free press in supporting democratic institutions. And we can study here what freedom really means. I would argue that it requires a certain absence of top-down corporate control over the media and an easy access to the major media on the part of intellectual voices from a wide range of backgrounds. We in the US should take note. Third, education, the importance of critical thinking and imagination. Now we move to warning signs for the future, areas in which I think the Indian democracy is currently weak and vulnerable. The government schools of the state of Gujarat are famous for their complete lack of critical thinking, their exclusive emphasis on rote learning and the uncritical learning of marketable skills, and the elements of fascist propaganda that easily creep in when critical thinking is not cultivated. It's well known that Hitler is presented as a hero in history textbooks in that state, and nationwide public protest has not yet led to any change. To some extent, the rest of the nation is better off than Gujarat. National-level textbooks that were really um, very ideological and, and, and false under the BJP have now been rewritten to take out the false view of history loved by the Hindu right and to substitute a much more nuanced view. Nonetheless, the emphasis on rote learning and regurgitation for national examinations is distressing everywhere. And things are only becoming worse with the immense pressure to produce economically productive graduates. The educational culture of India used to contain amazingly strong and influential progressive voices, such as the great Tagore, who emphasized that all the skills in the world were useless and even baneful if not wielded by a cultivated imagination and refined critical faculties, and who then created one of the world's most influential progressive schools in Shantaniketan, which influenced progressive education in Europe and in America. Currently, these voices have been silenced in India by the demand for profitability in the global market. Parents' great pride is the admission of a child to the Indian Institutes of Technology and Management. They have contempt for the humanities and the arts. I fear for democracy down the road when it's run, as it increasingly will be if there's no change, by docile engineers in the Gujarat mold, unable to criticize the propaganda of politicians or to imagine the pain of another human being. This is no humorous topic, but it can be illustrated by an odd story 
from my own experience investigating the Gujarati community in the United States, where you might be interested to know that 40% of the Indian American community comes from Gujarat. A large proportion of Gujarati Hindus belong to the Swami Narayan sect of Hinduism, distinctive today, not so much originally, for its emphasis on uncritical obedience to the utterances of the current head of the sect, whose title is Pramukh Swami. On a visit to the elaborate multi-million dollar Swami Narayan temple in Bartlett, Illinois, I was given a tour by a young man recently arrived from Gujarat who delighted in telling me the simplistic Hindu rite story of India's history and who emphatically told me that whenever Pramukh Swami speaks, one must regard it as the direct voice of God and obey without any question. At this point, with a beatific smile, this young man pointed up to the elaborate carved marble ceiling of the temple and asked, do you know why this ceiling glows the way it does? I said I didn't, and I confidently expected an explanation invoking the spiritual powers of Pramukh Swami. My guide smiled even more broadly. Fiber optic cables, he said. <laughs> we are the first ones to put this technology into a temple. Now here you see what can easily wreck a democracy, a combination of technological sophistication with utter docility. I fear that many democracies around the world, including our own, are going down this road through a lack of emphasis on the humanities and the arts and an unbalanced emphasis on profitable skills. Fourth, the creation of a liberal public culture. How did fascism take such a hold in India? Hindu traditions emphasize tolerance and pluralism. And daily life in India, as in the great cities of the US, tends to emphasize the ferment and vigor of difference as people from so many different ethnic, linguistic, and regional backgrounds encounter one another. But the traditions contain a wound, a locus of vulnerability, and I would locate this wound in the area of humiliated masculinity. For centuries, some Hindu males think they have been subordinated, laughed at, treated as weak by a sequence of conquerors. The fact that the British really did despise Hinduism as what Winston Churchill called a beastly religion surely made matters worse as Hindus came to identify the sexual playfulness and sensuousness of their tradition with their own weakness and subjection. So a repudiation of the sensuous and the cultivation of the masculinity typified by Tagore's image of the British military band came to seem the best way out of subjection. One reason why the RSS attracts such a following is this widespread sense of masculine failure, a key aspect of RSS rhetoric. At the same time, the RSS filled a void, organizing at the grassroots level with great discipline and selflessness. The RSS is not just a fascist organization. It also provides needed social services, and it provides fun, luring boys in with the promise of a group life that has both more solidarity and more imagination than the tedious world of government schools. Gowarkar said that if he saw a peacock in his garden and wanted it to become his pet, he would feed it little bits of opium every day until it became addicted, and then it would come to his garden every day. Well, that, he then went on to say, is how the shakas work. By the lure of fun and games, they make boys obedient members of the organization. So what's needed is some counterforce, which would supply a public culture of pluralism with equally efficient grassroots organization and a public culture of masculinity that would contend against the appeal of the warlike and rapacious masculinity purveyed by the Hindu right. Gandhi understood this very well. During his lifetime, his powerful movement did purvey a counter image to the images of domineering masculinity. 
He taught his followers that life's real struggle was a struggle within the self against one's own need to dominate and one's fear of being vulnerable. He focused attention on sexuality as an arena in which domination plays itself out with pernicious effect, and he cultivated an androgynous maternal persona. I think that in some respects he went off the tracks in his suggestion that sexual relations are inherently scenes of domination and in his recommendation of asceticism as the only route to non-domination. Nonetheless, he saw the problem at its root, and he proposed a public culture that while he lived was sufficient to address it. His followers understood that being a real man does not mean emulating British aggressiveness and learning to bash others. It means having the courage not to bash others, to stand up to aggression with nothing but one's own naked human dignity around one. In the process, he won the respect of the entire world for India's traditions conceived as he conceived them. In quite a different way, Rabindranath Tagore also created a counter-image of the Indian self, an image that was more sensuous, more joyful than that of Gandhi, but equally bent on renouncing the domination that Tagore saw as inherent in European nationalism. After Gandhi, however, this part of the pluralist program has languished. Much though he loved and admired both Gandhi and Tagore, Nehru had contempt for religion, and out of that contempt, he neglected the cultivation of that which the radical religions of both men had supplied, images of who we are as citizens, symbolic connections to the roots of human vulnerability and openness, and the creation of a grassroots public culture around these symbols. Nehru was a great institution builder, but in thinking about the public culture of the new nation, his focus was always on economic, not cultural issues. Meanwhile, the RSS, which understands human psychology very well, goes to work unopposed in every state and region, skillfully plucking the strings of hate and fear. By now, pluralists generally realize that a mistake was made in leaving grassroots organization to the right, but it's very difficult to jumpstart a pluralist movement. The salient exception in my experience has been the women's movement, which has built very successfully at the grassroots level over the years with the regional knowledge, the mixture of economic and cultural incentives, and the respect for the imagination and the arts that such a movement requires. It's comforting for Americans to talk about the clash of civilizations. This thesis tells us that evil is outside, distant, other, and that we are perfectly all right as we are. All we need to do is remain ourselves and fight the good fight. But the case of Gujarat shows us that the world is very different from the world depicted in that comforting fable. The forces that assail democracy are internal to many, if not most, democratic nations, and they are not foreign. They're our own ideas and voices, meaning the voices of aggressive European nationalism refracted back against the original aggressor with the extra bile of resentment born of a long experience of domination and humiliation. All nations, then, Western and non-Western, need to examine themselves, looking for the roots of domination within, and devising effective institutional and educational countermeasures. At a deeper level, the case of Gujarat shows us what Gandhi and Tagore in their different ways knew very well, that the real root of domination lies deep in the human personality, in the narcissistic desire to dominate others and to efface the inconvenient challenge posed by the different. Looking at the clash in this way, we will naturally focus on four strategies for the preservation and enhancement of democracy around the world. First, on getting institutional structures that can remain firm against fascist challenges. Second, 
on bolstering the independence, including the economic independence of the press and the free speech of intellectuals. Third, creating educational institutions that teach the skills of critical thinking and imagining that are so crucial for the health of democracy. And finally, what Martin Luther King Jr. learned from Gandhi, creating a public culture of non-domination and equality that can inspire fearful human beings, for all of us are fearful, with the idea that comfort is to be found in mutual aid and reciprocity, not in the quick and dirty victory over an enemy onto whom we have all too conveniently projected our own fears. Thanks.